This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 28th of September, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the International Climate Conference is coming up, but will the Prime Minister be there? And the roadmap out of COVID, will we get there by Christmas time? I'm Andy Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, breakdancer and freestyler. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP26, It's due to be held between 31st of October and the 12th of November, and it's the most important climate change meeting since 2015. But it's only important if you decide that it's important enough to go to it, and Scott Morrison is yet to make a decision about whether he'll be there or not. The Liberal and National Coalition, they've shown a great deal of animosity towards anything to do with climate change issues. They say that they always want to see the cost of enacting any climate change targets before doing anything about it. And they've politicised climate change ever since they started talking about axing the tax on Labor's carbon pricing scheme back in 2010. But essentially, their defiance on these issues is more about protecting vested interests and Liberal Party donors. And because of that, we all have to suffer. In the lead up to the 2007 election, Kevin Rudd said that climate change is the biggest moral challenge of our generation, but it's gone way past that stage. Climate change is not just a challenge, it's a threat to human existence on this planet. Is there a chance that the federal government might be swamped on climate change issues in the lead up to the next election? It's probably an issue that is a sleeper issue for the Liberal Party and the National Party. There's a possibility, I think, and it's it's been shown in by-elections and even in the last election, that Liberal voters or Liberal seats have a lot of people who are very concerned about the environment and national seats too. There are farmers who have watched the degradation of the environment over decades of farming. And there are some who are starting to see that perhaps the National Party isn't in their best interest. And you're getting rural seats in parts of the state, particularly up north where the vote is, by north I mean Byron Bay and Armidale, where you have slightly different demographic with the university at Armidale and the different demographic of Byron Bay with hippies and the wealthy who are concerned about climate change. So you can see that in some parts of the liberal heartland, these things are very important and are seen. And again, seats like Warringah and Indi, where Kathy McGowan and Zali Stegall have fairly liberal policies uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of some of the social issues, but they were also very much in favour of much more environmentally friendly policy. This is what takes out Sophie Mirabella. There were other local issues, but it's what takes out Tony Abbott. Again, there were other local issues, but that is the thing. Now, there's a lot of independents who are targeting key seats. Josh Frydenberg has suddenly come out in favour of 
carbon taxes and looking at better environmental management and more realistic and closer goals. Because in the Cedar Kuyong, the high-profile Simon Holmes at court is against him. I think Holmes at court, he's probably closer to the Greens than the Liberal Party. I don't know for sure. I don't want to presume anything on Simon Holmes at court. But Josh Frydenberg would be worried about. Well, it just seems like the lack of action on climate change has been going on for far too long. So I looked up the policy that the coalition proposed at the 2007 federal election that was put forward by John Howe, and it was actually far more radical than anything that's ever been introduced and anything that the Liberal National Coalition of today would ever put forward. So it's it's just been going on for far too long. That's 14 years ago. And today we're still arguing about this whole process. But I did notice that the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, he keeps on talking about, well, show us the cost of all of this. And it's almost like he's a barking parrot. And the other factor is that no one in the media ever mentions that relationship between Barnaby Joyce, the National Party, and Gina Reinhart and other players in Australia's resource industry. He's, he's almost like the Manchurian candidate. And no one ever mentions his ownership of properties near the gas fields of Narrabri. And these are actually properties that he said that he was going to sell a few years ago to avoid a conflict of interest. But two or three years later on, he still owns these property. He's given a microphone to go on and on about these issues, but no one ever pulls him up on why he's against climate change action. On the rare occasions that they do pull him up, there is garbled, I guess you'd call them platitudes, on jobs and why he changed things that work. And he doesn't quite deny the science of climate change because I think even Barnaby has realised that that won't fly in the electorate anymore, that the evidence is very hard to refute. He is meddled in Gina Reinhardt's family issues, writing a letter to her daughter and trying to resolve the family issues they had. Um, they've been suing each other for years in the courts over the, the vast wealth left by Gina's father, Lang Hancock. Nobody outside the family has any real right to do that, I would have thought. But Barnaby is close enough to Gina that he feels that he could have. Now, her children reacted by saying if he's looking for a job with the organisation, he can forget it, which is pretty clear as to what they think of him. Well, it does seem like there's a bit of a clear pathway between the Liberal Party and the National Party and the Hancock Corporation. So Sophie Mirabella, who you mentioned before, she was formerly a, a Liberal Party Member of Parliament and a minister. She now actually works with the Hancock Corporation. Sophie Mirabella could get a job with them. She was not, I won't comment on as to why, because it's all secondhand, but she was not a popular person in those circles. Barnaby can't get a job with them, which I think says a lot. It's one of those things that should be brought up again and again and again and made to explain. Now, of course, a politician as a private citizen can hang around with whomever they like and associate with whomever they like. But there are certain associations that don't work as well and don't look as good as others. I think Barnaby's slightly resuscitated career is hanging on a thinner thread than it was before. It's clear that the National Party itself has two major factions, those that are very closely tied to the mining industry and those that are maybe less closely tied. And this, particularly in an election year, may have profound impact on the National Party. They'll either lose one or other of the factions and that may not lead to very much 
or it could destroy the party altogether. Hard to tell at this point. Now, it does seem that the climate change issues are now getting out of the federal government's control. The international community is moving towards a carbon tariff, whether Australia likes it or not. And this is being pushed by the Biden administration in the US. And it's almost gone past the point of arguing against this. But in the past, Australia has had decades of favourable treatment in targets under the Kyoto Protocols. The Howard government refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocols. And in 1997, they argued their way to have an 18% increase in greenhouse emissions while the rest of the world was reducing theirs. And even when the Rudd government ratified the Kyoto Protocol in 2008, they were allowed to have an increase of emissions of 8% compared to 1990 levels. So maybe it wasn't the greatest moral challenge of our time. Now, you could argue that reducing your emissions to a lower level than they otherwise might have been is a reduction of some sort, but the upshot is that emissions are still going up. And it does seem that at the COP26 discussions, there'll be no way around arguing against what the world community wants to implement. And countries like Australia will, they'll still be able to pollute if that's what they want to do, but they'll pay a very heavy price for that. The other thing too, of course, is that Australia has annoyed quite profoundly the French. The French are sending a $60 billion bill, which they are entitled to. We heavily criticised that contract when it first came out. We were right but it's the same, essentially the same government who is breaking it as who started it. And contracts are hugely important. If you break them, you have to pay. That's The law has been that since at least Magna Carta. So it's a place where Morrison could well be humiliated even more usually than he is. With the French being angry, that will have implications with the rest of the EU. And with a weakened Britain trying to help, but not actually able to help, it has put us out in the cold in many ways. There's going to be massive tariffs added unless we change. And I suspect that we will get uh, more punitive tariffs than other countries. Well, I guess the COP26 conference, that could end up being a payback time for the French government against the Australian government to force Australia into a position that they don't necessarily want to go towards. But the upshot is that this isn't so much a conference where individual countries can negotiate different deals for themselves. It's just not going to be like that. And and it possibly does explain why Scott Morrison has set up this message that maybe he won't go to the COP26 conference in Glasgow. Now, he did rush to the UN General Assembly meeting a couple of weeks ago. He wasn't even part of those discussions, as we discussed in our last podcast. He did go there to meet with the head of the News Corporation as well. That was a totally unimportant meeting for him to be at. COP26 is a far more important meeting for a Prime Minister to attend. It's a far more important meeting for Australia, as far as Australia's interests are concerned. But now he's suggesting, oh, look, I can't really go because I've got to stay in Australia to manage the pandemic. And this is a pandemic that he's mismanaged for most of 2021. So I'm not sure how he's going to be managing the pandemic in a much better way. He should actually be going over to the COP26 conference. He needs to face the music. He's a man who doesn't deal with consequence well and has had very few consequences in his life. I'm sure he was sacked from Tourism Australia, sacked from Tourism New Zealand, wasn't at KPMG, but each time he sort of stumbled into a bigger job. He loses the pre-selection very badly for uh, the Cedar Cook and gets News Corp to destroy the reputation of Michael Tauk. So even though he doesn't have 
uh, a lot of achievement. There hasn't been a lot of consequence. He's managed to avoid that. He may argue differently, of course, but looking at it from the outside, his hard times have been much less than his uh, what we might call his good times. So I suspect that he won't go to Glasgow. He'll send Maurice Payne, Dan Tehan, or Susan Lay. And let's be fair too, he's got to do 14 days quarantine having been to New York. Another 14 days quarantine going to Glasgow may not be the best use of his time. Yeah, and you did refer to Simon Holmes the court, and this is forcing Liberal members of Parliament to start speaking up about climate change issues. And these are the issues that they really talk about. And it seems like because they're being threatened by independents in those particular seats, now all of a sudden it's quite a worthwhile issue for them to discuss and talk about, oh, yes, Australia needs to do a lot more on climate change. It needs to be far more ambitious. Dave Sharma in the seat of Wentworth in Sydney, he's also taking on the same approach where he's become more vocal about the Liberal Party needing to do more to achieve targets and set up her net zero emissions by 2050. But they rarely talk about this. They've been very quiet about climate change issues pretty much forever. But now that they're facing challenges from good quality independents in their respective seats, and all of those independents are calling for action on climate change, now the Liberal Party or those individual MPs in those seats from the Liberal Party, they're starting to make noise about this. Is it a case of all talk before the election and no action afterwards if they're returned to government? I think one of the truisms of all politicians is that they really run on two emotions, fear and victory. And fear is the overriding one, fear of losing their seat, fear of being caught out in a scandal, fear of losing power, fear of upsetting whomever. It's why so many campaign on fear, because it's it's an emotion that they're used to and it's an emotion that they can understand. Yet hope is the better one. Positivity and optimism and, and leadership are the better ones. But most politicians tend to prefer fear. And fear is a, is a base survival emotion. Evolution has got us to embrace fear because it's how you survived before we had civilization and stuff and even during civilization. And with the rise of these very sharp, very capable and fairly popular independents, the fear of losing their seat and not having all the trappings of office would be fearful. Frydenberg's seat is very interesting. It's only had seven members. And that's, I think, the only seat in Australia with that type of lineage. And that's from 1901. Other seats have had 20, 30, 40 members since 1901, and that's fine. But I don't think Frydenberg wants to lose Kuyong, the seat of Menzies. But I don't think Frydenberg will be afforded such luxuries. And in a related issue, the government is also on the verge of introducing legislation that will allow them to deregister charities and non-government organisations if they deem that they're likely to commit an offence in the future. So I'm not sure if this is going to end up being like the minority report, but it just means that governments will be able to monitor the activities of NGOs and the people that work there, such as Greenpeace, the Sunrise Project or 
the climate change or even individuals such as Simon Holmes are caught, they'll be able to look at their social media activity and decide that they should be deregistered. We discussed this in the previous podcast that for all of those people in Melbourne that protested last week about their freedoms being infringed, the right not to be vaccinated, they've actually been looking in the wrong place. If they're so worried about their freedoms, they should be protesting at Parliament House in Canberra because what is being proposed by the Morrison government is far more draconian than anything that's been going on in Melbourne. Yeah, and it's not coming out of Dan Andrews. (laughs) We should put that first and foremost. The ability to join any organisation that has similar ideals and values to you is absolutely key to a, a free and functioning democracy. There's already laws in place about violence and breaking the law. You don't need special laws to stop crime, to stop violence, to stop radical protests that lead to the destruction of property and, more importantly, the injuring and worse of people. These laws already exist in the the Crimes Act. So to start to target people, and this is true whether it's a bikey gang or if it's a trade union or if it's the Liberal Party, while they're not breaking laws... There should be no reason to have an extra layer of law on top of them. Once they start breaking laws, sure, but those laws are already on the statute if they start breaking laws. It is in the blood of the Liberal Party to try and legislate things out of existence that they don't like. The 1926 Crimes Act was modified to target trade unions, for example, and then modified again in 1932 and then again in 1951, all in the hope of making trade unions illegal. It failed each time because the High Court held each time that freedom of association is an important part of the Australian polity. And if a trade union breaks the law, there are laws that are already in place. So you don't need extra laws. And I think that's about right. I can think of organisations that I'd rather not exist. But if they are not breaking laws, then bad luck to me. (laughs) You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, is Australia's roadmap out of COVID realistic or is it all just about the next federal election? New South Wales government has announced a relaxation of lockdown rules once double-dose vaccination rates reach 80%. And another relaxation of the rules from December the 1st, where it's assumed that 90% of the population aged over the age of 16 will be fully vaccinated. Victoria is also creating a roadmap out of COVID as well. It's following a similar pathway to New South Wales, but that's not stopping the federal government from scoring political points against the Victorian government. Vaccination rates in Victoria are behind New South Wales, but slightly ahead of the national average. So it's not quite clear what the issue for Scott Morrison is. 
The Prime Minister is placing great pressure on the Queensland and Western Australia governments to remove border restrictions once national vaccination rates reach 80% of the adult population. And he's used a range of metaphors in the past. Get out from under the doona, get out of the cave. And the latest one is get on with it and move out of second gear. And this is a message that's been picked up by Sky News and the ABC. And he's pushing the message of Australia fully opening up by Christmas time. Now, you do have to have a pathway out of COVID and Christmas time is a special time for families all across Australia. But if it's not safe to do so, well, it's best for borders in those states to remain closed. Why introduce problems that you don't need to deal with? Exactly. I'd love to be able to go and visit my sister in Queensland or my father in rural New South Wales or other members of my family. But I don't want to do it at the expense of spreading COVID potentially through other states. It's pushing on people's selfish tendencies, and understandably in this case, to get back together. However, most of the other premiers have said, we don't want COVID and until it's under control, and it's not under control in New South Wales. The hospital system is a nightmare at the moment. People are dying of COVID and they're finding them in their houses and they haven't been diagnosed. They're only diagnosing them after death. People uh, have been well one day and dead the next because they've got people not in hospital but at home and the health department are doing the absolute very best they can. I'm not criticising particularly the people who are on the phones ringing and checking that people are okay. It's a horrible, horrible job and it hasn't been made any easier by the attitude of we must open by Christmas because Christmas is important. It's really only important for people to be out for retailers so people can overspend and celebrate. They hide it under, oh, families can get together. Sure, but if you have, you know, we've seen the parties in which 40 people have turned up and then 35 of them got COVID and we don't want that. Now, with vaccination, it is less likely that you'll end up in hospital and, and die. But even with 80% vaccination, you're still the risk of one in five people you meet are going to get very seriously ill. And there have been fully vaccinated people who've died. So till the hospital system can cope, and, till, and I would have waited till daily numbers were down under 100 too, but again, I'm not an epidemiologist and we know how many compromises the New South Wales government have brought in. And we know that Scott Morrison wants to keep trade open and wants to keep everything open, even though had it been managed in the first place, we'd be in a similar spot to, well, Queensland, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand. And I think too, a lot of it is proving that they had managed it well after all, and that they did the right way. Gladys Berejiklian said yesterday that she has no regrets, which I thought was an extraordinary thing to say for a clearly botched strategy. Well, it is quite strange to talk about roadmaps and opening up on a day when New South Wales has got 863 cases and Victoria has actually got 867 cases. 
So it's a little bit odd to start talking about the pathway out, but I guess that's what we need to do at some point. The New South Wales roadmap is more streamlined than the approach taken on by the UK government, which removed restrictions pretty much immediately when they had their so-called Freedom Day several months ago. And that has resulted in 36,000 new COVID cases every day and 180 deaths. And to put that into context, in Australia, that would equate to the equivalent of 14,000 new cases every day and 70 deaths every day. In June this year, you referred to this before, the New South Wales government failed to learn the lessons of what was happening overseas with the Delta strain, and that's what has caused this current outbreak. But it seems like, at least this time around, they have looked at the UK and experience and thought, well, no, that's not acceptable. The electorate isn't going to accept that. And they have been suggesting a more sensible approach to getting out of COVID, the the roadmap out. It took them a while, but it looks like they finally decided to start paying attention, or some attention at least. And, And also referring to those daily case numbers, I've still got issues with the way that the New South Wales government has managed this and the federal government. But to me, being able to go for a swim at a public pool in the middle of a COVID hotspot doesn't seem to be the right thing to do, or nor does opening up schools when There'll be a lot of unvaccinated kids there, but they're determined to open up as soon as possible. Yeah, I can't help but feel that it's the we must do better than Victoria. We must do better than the Labor states. Schools, I've said this before, schools are petri dishes. And if there was free and equal access to vaccines, which is the other thing, the 80% opening is not including kids under 16 who we know are transmitters of the disease and who get the disease. It also doesn't allow for the fact that in some places up north and out west, you're at 30% of vaccination rates. In some parts of the city, it will be 95, 96, 97%. But in parts of rural New South Wales, it will only be 40%. But all aggregated together, it will come to 80%. Most other health departments have suggested 90% and the state government wanted 70%. So this is clearly a political compromise, not a health policy compromise with the opening at 70%, which isn't 70%, and it isn't 80% and it isn't 90%. And Gladys Berejiklian did uh, warn that cases will surge. Again, I can't see why you'd want cases to surge, but here we are. So it does seem like we're at quite a precarious stage of managing coronavirus. So certainly the rates of vaccination are going right up. We're getting close to 80% in New South Wales. And if the government is talking about reducing restrictions once they get to 90%, well, that's better than talking about the 70% that they were referring to quite constantly just several weeks ago. But again, you just can't help feeling that this is all about politics. Again, this is like a broken record, but we keep hearing Scott Morrison's attacks on the Queensland and West Australia governments, yet we hear nothing at all about the South Australia or Tasmania governments, even though they're implementing exactly the same policies as Queensland and Western Australia. The Western Australia... Premier Mark McGowan, he has mentioned that there's a possibility that the borders for Western Australia won't open up until at least Easter 2022. And 
we mentioned this before. Why would they open up to Victoria and New South Wales when they've got seven, eight, nine hundred cases of coronavirus every single day? The media is also replicating the words that Scott Morrison is putting out. Again, leading their stories about negative information about West Australia and Queensland, about their border closures, ignoring the other states, the good news about New South Wales, bad news in Victoria. It's becoming quite predictable and monotonous and quite boring as well. I'm hoping that people are getting tired of the childish behaviour of our governments. And they say they are. But then when it comes to election time, they vote the same mob back in. And it's that old quote attributed to Einstein of insanity is trying the same thing again and again, expecting a different result. At some point, they're going to pay. But Morrison is a prime minister who thrives on division, in my opinion, because he doesn't know any better. And division and chaos helps him to mask all of those problems that he's created during 2021, all of the corruption and incompetence which have riddled his government ever since he became the prime minister in 2018. And overall, the key messaging forming in the lead up to the next election, Morrison is trying to set up Labor as the party of lockdowns, border closures and restrictions, and setting up the Liberal National Coalition as the coalition of freedom, free trade, opening up borders, opening up economy. And I guess that Morrison continues this process because he feels that he's on a winner here, that this is the strategy that he'll need to implement and adopt in the lead up to the next election. Now, I'm not sure if that's because he thinks this is the best strategy possible or it's the least worst option for him. It seems to have worked for him in the past, but will the strategy keep working for him in the future? Or will the electorate just end up being sick of this chaos, sick of the division? sick of the political point scoring, will they be looking for options and alternatives in the lead up to the next federal election? It may be the time for independence. It may be the time for the Greens and smaller parties that aren't the Nationals. If I was Labor, I'd be looking to see how I could leverage this to my advantage, and I'm sure they probably are. But remembering that most independents, not all, But most independents pivot at least slightly to the right. So Labor may have issues in capitalising on this. But there's plenty of right wing in the Labor Party. So it's not an impossible job, I don't think. But it's one in which both parties should be looking very carefully at seeing how they can leverage it to their advantage. I do know that a lot of the independents are campaigning on a vote for the Liberal Party as a vote for Barnaby Joyce, which I find very interesting. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.